this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. This is Linus Wilson, podcasting from Cologne, Panama. Actually, I'm in the jungles where Shelter Bay is located. This is uh, about the second week the boat's been in Panama. I actually flew back to the United States last week and had a, a nice visit with Jan and Sophie that was precipitated by uh, Sophie's passport being expired and really the only way we could figure out how to get the passport office to issue us a passport was for me to fly out because they require both parents to be present uh, for a child's passport needing to be renewed rush and they do have an exception that you could get it notarized but you have to have a U.S. notary we couldn't find a U.S. notary in Panama. The only U.S. notary we knew of was at the embassy and the first time I could meet with them was after Jan and Sophie needed to fly. So they're flying in this next weekend into Panama and I've just flown back ahead of them and uh, I'm kind of just working on boat projects. This week I'm working on replacing the lifelines with Amsteel Blue Dyneema. I guess the other brand is called Spectra. Uh, so stronger than steel rope and that's what I'm using to replace the lifelines that were all rusted and they were also conducting electricity so I'm thinking that the the Amsteel blue lines are not going to be good conductors of electricity and hopefully we'll get to start using our lifeline solar panels uh, which will more than double our solar capacity and that'll keep our batteries better charged on passage and at anchor. The other projects, the the boat, uh, one of the other side effects of the electrolysis that happened on our offshore passage uh, from Cayo Largo, Cuba to Providencia a few weeks back was that the boat got a lot of rust stains on it I want to thank all the people on Facebook who commented on that post and uh, the consensus seemed to be uh, that I the way to get the rust stains off was with oxycylic acid. I tried in Providencia a little just uh, Formula 409, didn't work at all. I tried with the scratch pad but of course that scratches up the hull. So I didn't do very much of that, and it was also very time-consuming. So I don't recommend that. But the oxycylic acid, which can be found in many products, uh, one that you could buy at like West Marine, where you can get a $15 discount off your next $200 purchase by going to slowboatsailing.com and clicking on the, the ad at the bottom of the page with the sailboat and using the promo code you can get uh, that $15 off by going to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast website. On and Off is a product they sell. I think FSR is another one. Another product that you could use is a Barkeeper's Friend. 
and that's what I ended up getting. One of the problems is I, I wanted to bring the oxalic acid back from the U.S. because I have an easier time getting around when I'm in the U.S. because I have access to a car and there's also a wider range of products you will find when you go out cruising abroad. You'll, you'll miss the, the availability of products uh, that you have in the U.S., especially when you're going to kind of the developing world or uh, remote islands. Your, your choices are a lot more limited. So I wanted to bring the on and off back, but then I, you know, you read the, the statement that they have before you get on the airplane, and it seemed like that was a banned substance, so we didn't, I didn't end up bringing it. Uh, so I, when I got back to Panama, and I had the rental car, because I, I rented a car to get back to Cologne, which is kind of a far, oh, far from Panama City, where the, the big airport is. I, I was able to find some barkeeper's friend, uh, both in the powder and the spray, and also the gel, and that, this, I tried the spray and that worked really well, and I think all the other versions of it will also work really well, but you do have to use eye protection, and, and you do want to probably have an eye mask, and you definitely want to have something, some rubber gloves, some long rubber gloves for your hands, because it is pretty corrosive stuff and so you it, it, it's safe on on fiberglass but it's not good for skin or eyes or your lungs so you you don't want to breathe it in touch it uh, or get it in your eyes so that's worked pretty well on half the haul I just need to go around in the dinghy and get the other half and uh, you know I I had you know more uh, unfortunate experiences with uh, Panamanian officials in the airport and uh, you know I think I, I gave you a taste of the kind of kind of corruption you might find in Panama in the last episode so I won't go into it in detail but if you follow my Facebook posts you can hear about the Keystone crooks that I ran into at the Panama City Airport one of the things that I wanted to do for uh, the trip going forward was to, I wanted to transit the Panama Canal. That was kind of one of my goals for this season. I didn't think I was going to be able to do it because I couldn't find a haul-out facility, that a long-term haul-out facility for sailboats on the Pacific side of Panama. But, you know, my experiences here and has made me kind of redouble my efforts of thinking about places outside of Panama. One of those places is the uh, Puerto Lucia Yacht Club in Ecuador. And, you know, Ecuador is really on the circumnavigation route, right? It's, it's squarely on the route in the sense that, you know, you're going to go, most people coming out of Panama are going to stop at the Galapagos Islands. You know, instead of going kind of on the hypotenuse of the triangle, Salinas, Ecuador, where the Puerto Lucia Yacht Club is, is kind of on one of the legs, and that kind of gets you close to the Galapagos. It also gets you through the Panama Canal, which I thought would uh, make my trip next season a much longer. So I think if in my bonus episode I mentioned that Ecuador was kind of, if I couldn't get everything together 
next season stopping at Porta Lucia is was probably my fallback option. If I, I get, if we get to Porta Lucia uh, in Ecuador in uh, this season, then it makes it uh, pretty much inevitable that we're going to cross to Galapagos, Marquesas, and push on to Tahiti next season. So that's what I've been kind of moving towards in the last several days to, to get ready for that. And uh, I think Sophie and Jan are going to join me on that trip, hopefully, depending on how fast we get through the canal and uh, what the weather is like. And our sponsor for this episode is going to help us out with weather routing as they have throughout our trip since we left New Orleans on April 29th. Jennifer Clark's Gulfstream, both Dane and Jennifer Clark, have given us routing and weather advice uh, throughout and they, they'll continue to do that. And they're a sponsor for this episode. For that passage to Ecuador, I think we're looking probably for one more crew member. Stevie was definitely leaving in Panama, so and he was not interested in the Ecuador trip. He had already made other plans. So if anybody wants to contact me, send me a, shoot me a message on Facebook Messenger or uh, Linus Wilson at yahoo.com. And uh, I'd love to hear your story of why you'd want to come. But, you know, it's going to take somebody with a flexible schedule. You know, I typically, with crew, it's attitude is everything. Sailing experience is great, but I think it's more important the, the attitude you come with. And, you know, it's, it's short notice. So we'll probably, if we take on an extra crew member, we'll probably take someone local just because it'll be hard for people to get away from whatever they're doing. But if you're interested... Or you know somebody that's interested in doing an offshore passage, it's going to be a good one. There's the opportunity if you get here quick enough to transit the Panama Canal. And uh, if you are on the offshore passage, you will cross the equator, which I think is a big event for any sailor. The first time I cross the equator, first time Jan has crossed the equator, and first time Sophie's crossed the equator. I don't think it's going to be that bad of a passage but we might have to do a bit of motoring because we'll be in the doldrums so we'll see we'll see how it goes you never know it's many days and then it's also many days waiting for the weather window because i don't like to go just whenever i'm ready to go i go when the weather is ready for me so just send me a facebook message or shoot me an email at linuswilson at yahoo.com if you want to find out more. This episode is sponsored by Jennifer Clark's Gulfstream. Satellite oceanographer Jennifer Clark and professional meteorologist Dane Clark have over 35 years of experience helping sailors on blue water voyages. Their current charts, crossing waypoints, and personalized weather advice help sailors take advantage of favorable currents and minimize the impact of unfavorable ones. A link to their website, their email address, and their phone number are in the show notes. Alright, this week's guest is Trey Benefield, and I think you'll just love to hear his story 
And Trey is also offering to listeners of this podcast who come to him uh, for his wonderful charters and uh, sailing catamarans in exotic locations such as the Society Islands, a $200 per person discount if they mention the podcast when they sign up. Listen to this episode. I think you'll find Trey's a really nice guy, and he would be a great captain to have. Blue Moon Adventures takes care of everything for their guests. You can sail if you want, but no sailing experience is necessary. It's really a luxury charter, and it's always in a really wonderful location, such as Tahiti, Bora Bora, and other places. Let's just talk about how you started sailing. How did I start sailing? It's kind of uh, unfortunate in a way. I grew up in New Orleans, which is a big sailing town, but but at the time, uh, the thought of sailing never really occurred to me. 25 or so years ago, a friend of mine took me sailing here on the lake in Tennessee, taught me the basics of sailing, and I was completely hooked. Um, Since then, I've been through 11 different sailboats that I've owned. I like to buy old ones and fix them up and enjoy them on the lake here in Tennessee. And when I was learning to sail, though, you know, I was reading books about how to sail. And uh, inevitably, when they teach a basic skill, they tie it back to cruising across the ocean. You know, it's the exact same concept in a small boat on the lake as it is to cross the ocean. And uh, the idea of uh, crossing the ocean and sailing the South Pacific kind of settled in and uh, just wouldn't let go. So um, as I advanced in my sailing, I ended up um, crewing for people who did some ocean sailing, which was uh, which really didn't help me let go of the fantasy of sailing across the South Pacific at all. So, Anyhow, I began to think a lot about blue water sailing um, and uh, found out that there were websites that you could connect with captains that needed crew. So um, I volunteered to crew with uh, some folks. So I guess the first time a friend of mine, it was kind of funny. He had um, just bought this really nice um, Island Packet 45, and he had only ever done chartering in the islands uh, before. He had never done any open water sailing at all. And he called me up after he got that boat, and he said, I want you to show me how to sail it from, uh, um, where was he? He was in North Carolina to the Bahamas. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. We recruited a friend of mine who had done some ocean sailing before, and the three of us headed off. The owner of the boat and myself never having been to sea before at all. Um, So we headed out the first night we crossed the Gulf Stream, and uh, my buddy and I both got violently ill. I don't know if you know, but crossing the Gulf Stream can be pretty pretty rough. And uh, uh, anyhow, two days later, we got over our sea sickness, and... um, there's just no turning back. So I volunteered on some other boats and uh, learned a whole lot about uh, ocean sailing through some of the other captains. And um, then then I just kind of had to make it happen. And uh, the planets aligned for me, and off we went. Yeah, I you know, I did a delivery trip um, from New Smyrna to almost Myrtle Beach. And, you know... Mm-hmm. Everybody on the crew got seasick except 
me and the captain, so there were four of us, so half of us got seasick. And the only reason I didn't get seasick was because I had scopolamine. I re- recommend scopolamine to anybody. It's it's the only thing that really works for me. And the trick is you do have to get it on six to eight hours before you leave. So, uh, I'm very, very susceptible to seasickness. What I do find, though, is I acclimate over a period of time. So the scopolamine patch lasts about three days. Um, usually by the time the first patch is expired, I'm acclimated. But... Not always, not always 100%, but most of the time that, that gets me through it. The other thing that works is ginger beer. And on our, our cruises uh, through my company, uh, Blue Moon Adventures, we actually make our own ginger beer on board. We've got our own recipe, and it's turned out to be pretty popular, especially for me. <laughs> well, if, it, if nothing else, it keeps you hydrated, right? I've, I've not, you know, I've not found that the ginger snaps help that much, but I, I haven't been seasick that much either. Yeah, well, you're lucky. You're, and, you know, most people who choose to sail don't get seasick because that's a pretty big turnoff. But uh, somehow for me, I just just decided it was worth it. I, uh, I just have to put up with it and keep going. And when we take our, our cruises through Blue Moon, there's usually somebody who struggles uh, at least for a day somewhere in a week-long trip. But uh, the great thing about going on a small boat is you can't change course or slow down or uh, adapt things to whatever needs to happen. Uh, when did you finally buy your boat when you went on a big cruise? What kind of boat did you get? Uh, I was in a Beneteau 46, and I guess a little bit about my story and, and how I finally decided to go. You know, um, everybody has a different story, come to find out, about how they were able to break away from the chains of, of normal life and my situation is that I had a, um, um, an architecture and construction firm, and in the late 2000s, you know, when the economy was um, uh, so tragic, it, it didn't affect anybody as bad as it affected the construction industry. And I spent three years really just fighting our way as hard as I could to stay afloat. And, you know, I look back, I'm pretty fortunate that uh, we were able to keep the business in good shape, uh, in fair shape through that time. We did downsize a bit, but uh, we didn't ever have to borrow money. We didn't actually have to lay anybody off. We just, as people uh, moved on to other things, we didn't replace them. And uh, by 2012, we had a good uh, steady backlog of work again, but I was history. I was burnt out, frustrated, tired. I just couldn't bring myself to show up another day. And I started looking for other things to do, but all the opportunities that came up um, required me to compete with my my firm that I had just spent 15 years building. And, you know, if I was going to leave that firm with my partners and who were my good friends, the last thing I wanted to do was go compete with them. Plus, I really just wanted to change. That idea of of cruising kind of resurfaced then. That might be a really good sabbatical for me. And I looked into it at the time, and, you know, um, there there was a huge glut of uh, charter yachts uh, on the market in the Caribbean and the price had plummeted you know through the economy difficulties along with luxury real estate so uh, I found you know for the first time ever I could afford a, a pretty nice boat and then when I looked at it further the world's only healthy economy at the time was Australia so uh, and there are no real yacht manufacturers in the South Pacific so there was a steady parade of boats going from the 
Caribbean to Australia for several years there. And uh, I thought, well, if I could just buy a boat and sail it to Australia, you know, get my money back and maybe a little more. Which sounds so simple when you sum it up in one line like that. But um, the idea of captaining a boat for a year across the South Pacific was, uh, it's kind of a big thing. Uh, at the same time, my daughter was two years into college. She's a really bright girl. She was captain of the sailing team. She's a professional snow skier. But uh, her grades were kind of reflecting the fact that she was hanging out with sailors and skiers and college students. So, um, and she was two years in and hadn't picked a major. So I said, you know, she needs a break as well. And she was an excellent sailor, although she had never done any ocean cruising either. So the idea just started to take shape that, uh, you know, I would sell my company, take a year off, take my daughter out of school, and the two of us would uh, sail across the ocean. So I came home and told my wife about that plan. <laughs> and, um, you know, I get that look. You know the look? I'm sure you've had, <laughs> if, if you're a sailor and you've <laughs> floated some plans in front of your wife, you, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And a week or two later, she came back and she said, you know, I think I understand what you're talking about. And I came back with you know, somewhat of a financial plan to make it work. Uh, and I think it's a little bit similar to what you're probably doing in that you're doing uh, some publications and, and podcasts and otherwise, which might sort of augment your income, you know, offset some of the expenses. We had a very active blog. I would say on. they don't. <laughs> well, well, at least it's something. <laughs> don't tell your wife that it's not making any money, Linus. <laughs> She's aware. She's aware. Yeah. Well, we... Um, we did get sponsorships on our blog, um, and we did some TV deals and some some writing. Uh, so we had a handful of sponsors, which, uh, you, you know, it did a couple things. It was a little bit of money, but as much as anything, it really made us 100% committed to success of the, the voyage. The numbers, as you're aware, after reading your book, the numbers of people that start on something like this and don't get anywhere are just daunting. So at every opportunity, you know, when, when I might have given up, uh, or turn back or whatever else, or when my daughter was ready to strangle me and throw me off the boat and everything else, you know, it's, you know, we have committed to these people who have sponsored us to have some success in this. So we, it, it kept us, it was one of the many things that really kept us going. Cause it's, I, it's, I would agree with that, uh, that, you know, uh, you feel a little more committed if you do have sponsors, you could always give them back the gear, but they took a chance on you. So you feel like you, you want to follow through. Uh, that being said, I, I want to follow through no matter what. So, Yeah, and you really have to. The best piece of advice I got um, uh, was from a, a buddy of mine, a guy who turned out to be a, a good long-term long friend. But he was one of the workers that helped me uh, get the boat ready. And he was a South African guy, and this is down in St. Martin where we, we were living when we were preparing the boat. And he had crew. He's done a lot of cruising as well. He had actually uh, cruised from South Africa to the Caribbean on his boat. And he said, just keep going. He said, you got to find a way to just keep going. And that sounded so simple to me at the time. It was, it was so simple. It just didn't seem meaningful at all. And he just said, he said, find a way to just keep going. And months later, you know, as I'm sitting in, some harbor in the middle of nowhere where I don't have the parts that I need to get my boat functional again. You know, those words just sort of echoed in my mind, find a way to just keep going. And, you know, 
there is there there's always a way. It might not be as ideal as if you had access to a Home Depot, you know, or a, a, a real hardware store or an actual boat chandlery or mechanics or anything. But you can keep going if, if you want to, and you can do it safely. It's just not real pretty all the time. It's an it's embarrassing how much epoxy and duct tape I used in the course of a year at <laughs> sea. <laughs> so I guess a few things broke. Yeah, a few things broke. That's part of cruising. So <laughs> where did broke. where did you start out the boat? Oh, I'm sorry, what? Where did you start out the the Beneteau? I bought the boat in Saint Martin in the Eastern Caribbean, okay. and it wasn't that bad of a boat. Um, it had a relatively new engine, a really sturdy rig. It was a nice, comfortable boat. Looked good. Had sails. It had everything. You know, the well, it was a good start. I knew that I wanted to put some some gear on it for ocean cruising that a bare boat wouldn't have. You know, I knew I wanted to put a water maker on it, and I wanted to have some uh, power generation equipment. We ended up putting a, a wind turbine generator. Uh, but, you know, it appeared to be in pretty good shape, and we had it surveyed. The surveyor was, he was a joke. It was just a disaster. Never hire a, a Caribbean surveyor <laughs> for a boat. <laughs> Anyhow, the, you know, the list of things to do doubled, which I guess in hindsight it shouldn't have surprised me. Put us behind schedule a little bit, and, of course, everybody tells you not to be on a schedule when you're cruising, but... You know, I wasn't going to take five years off from my, my career. One year was plenty, and I had to get my daughter back to get back in school. And, you know, we, we set this thing, this one-year trip, and there's weather windows that you have to make as you're crossing you know, all the way across. I was pretty stressed out there in the beginning to get that done. But we, so anyhow, we did, um, we ended up having to up, upgrade the refrigerator. We had to work, uh, had to do a lot of work on the engine, which was almost brand new, but it, it had just it had, the boat had been sitting for a long time, so there was some corrosion on some critical parts. What else? We installed water maker. We installed more power generation equipment. I had a new set of sails built for the boat and had them shipped down from the states. Had um, what else? A new canvas bimini made. We had to rebuild the anchor windlass. Had uh, the bottom uh, completely. Uh, uh, we had a new barrier coat and a new. Um, anti-fouling paint put on it as well as some maintenance work down there we had to replace a whole bunch of the through hull footings the keel bolts oh <laughs> uh, what else pretty much everything but you know it, it looked like a pretty good boat but, but basically we rebuilt everything and i was furious the whole time we were living in saint martin hemorrhaging cash putting ourselves behind schedule how long did you spend in was irate. how long did you spend in saint martin uh, about three months which really isn't that long when you think about it, but no, for um, what you did, and you know, I, but it I, was, I can't, I can't imagine a lot of the stories I hear. People that they buy a boat and like two months later they set out, you know, takes a lot of. Yeah. It's taken me a long time to get my boats in shape that I like to set out with them, but I, I think yeah, it depends I, on the condition. Um, I think our our present boat was in pretty good condition to start out with, but. If we're, I don't know, over three years. We're almost three years out now. Well, I was uh, pretty motivated to make some progress. You know, that was the first time in my life since I was 13 years old that I, I didn't have a job. <laughs> so, you know, and in hindsight, maybe this was a mistake of my approach, but it was my job to get that boat prepared and get it to Australia for resale. 
So I, I was pretty aggressive about the work that had to happen on that boat. I, it was pretty much six days a week, 12 hours a day to get it done. And I would take a half a day off on Sunday or whatever just to catch my breath before hitting it hard again the next day. But the bright side of that, of that process was that I got to know the boat backwards and forwards. So whenever anything break, as it will, <laughs> I didn't always know everything I needed to know, but I knew where to get started. And, and uh, I could usually patch it up enough to get to the next port. And that's the thing is all of us who have done some serious cruising agree that the boats just aren't built for that. They're built for weekend use or, you know, a, a, a little bit of island hopping and then back to the, back to the mechanic to fix everything. You know, it, it, the boat's got everything that your, that your car has on it. It's got everything that your house has in it and a whole lot of other things as well to keep it going. And if you just, you know, it, it's rocking constantly. Uh, it's under tremendous um, physical strains from the weight of the sail on it. So things are being torqued and stretched in all sorts of ways all the time. Salt water goes everywhere. And, uh, you know, uh, salt water is not good for anything. Things are going to break. They're going to break constantly. Don't get very far away if you're not ready to fix things. And the things that you think are not essential really are. I think uh, we sail differently today than people used to sail, you know, really just even 25, 30 40 years ago because we have things like ais and autopilot oh that's another thing i put all new electronics on the boot we had an autopilot you know, it was pretty hard for a two-person crew to get anywhere before autopilot but my daughter and i could could handle that boat fairly easily with just the two of us by uh you know working shifts through the night but if anybody had to sit there at the helm and actually drive the boat for a four-hour shift it's it's pretty hard to drive a straight line for hours and hours and hours. It just wouldn't have happened. So the autopilot died on us two times. I had no idea how an autopilot worked, but uh, we just sort of dug into it and figured out what was what was not working and uh, got it back back to functional. But it is one of those things that I was pretty embarrassed about by the time I got to Australia. And we had, uh, like I said, duct tape and epoxy on the autopilot. So. <laughs> but it got us there. I think St. Martin is, if you're going to buy a boat, that's probably a good place to buy it because it seems like they have a lot of marine stores over there and there's a lot of resources in St. Martin. They do. They do. If I had the time and I was going to do it again, it was, <laughs> it's a good place in the Caribbean to, 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 uh, to buy and restore a boat. It, it does have good boat yards some chandleries and uh, a lot of good things and there's a lot of talent on the island for working on the boat as well the busy t time of year which is the time of year that we were there from january to march working on our boat um there are multi-million dollar or mega yachts 40 50 million dollar yachts all over that place and everybody who works on boats is going to be is going to want to work on those boats because that's where the real money is <laughs> it took all the it took all the coercion i could come up with to get somebody to come help me fix my refrigerator and the whole time he was shaking his head i'm supposed to be on the big mega yacht it's like yeah but you're here help me help me it really just took all the business skill that i had you know and a lot of the work that i've done over the years was just project management, just keeping everybody organized and on task, and one thing after another, keeping it going. It it was it was really a 
been a, a huge challenge to get that much work done to that boat in three months. <laughs> but it got done, and we took off. And the boat wasn't in perfect condition when we left. I sailed 14,000 miles with a fuel gauge that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our fuel gauge well, is new. not quite perfect either. It kind of goes from totally full to almost empty fairly quickly. Yeah, but you know uh, how much fuel you burn per hour, right? Yeah. I, so I did, every time I took on fuel, I wrote down the hours on the engine uh, meter. So I knew, you know, whatever it was, 35 hours down the road, I'd be out of fuel again. So I kind of always had an idea where I was. Never, never did run out of fuel. Had a lot of other calamities, but that one never happened. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always afraid of letting the tank go down too, because, well, that that sounds it sounds like you had a great experience with your daughter to share that at that time of life. That that sounds pretty awesome. It was, it really was, and um, you know, I don't think uh, I don't think she'd mind me saying today that you know when she got on the boat, she was pretty normal and self-centered suburban teenager. I think over the course of the year she grew an awful lot you know we got to meet people who by the standards she thought were normal people that had absolutely nothing and were still very happy and giving satisfied people so there was that and then the i think another thing that was really good and is that um i had to sleep from time to time you know we worked in four-hour shifts and when when i went to sleep there was a hundred percent trust that she would take care of things while I was down. She turned out to be a very, very good sailor. It took a little while for her to, to give up the mentality of racing, you know, because she was a, a racing sailor and her whole, everything about sailing was going full speed. And, you know, it took about a month and a half for me to convince her that if we break something out here, we're kind of up the creek. So we need to kind of not go 100% all of the time. So Yeah, that's, that's she, always something that I try to instill with crew if I have crew on, especially they have a sailing background, is that we don't yeah. want to we don't want to test the limits of the boat. We want to go well inside the limits of the boat because if it breaks, that's going to slow down our trip a lot more than going fast is going to get us to our destination. Right? If we break if we break a stay, you know, we're in a we're in a big heap of trouble that we have to fix ourselves, right? But if we, get, yeah. if we get into port even a day earlier, that's that doesn't save us any time relative to the risks of breaking something out there. Exactly, exactly. And, and what's to be gained, you know, getting there a day earlier? Like, you know, you're getting ready to go to Panama. I guess that's going to be, what, eight to ten day trip. What difference does it make? Yeah, no, it not means much. Nothing. It just means nothing. I appreciate about my daughter okay. is she never did compromise on our safety protocols. You know, and when we're out there at sea and she's the only one awake, it was absolutely required that she wear the, the harness, you know, and she'd be attached uh, to the boat at all times. And she took that very that she did that because if she hadn't been properly taking care of herself, I, I wouldn't have been able to sleep. And you need to sleep. Please to sleep. Or else when things start going bad, you end up making bad decisions. It's just not good. Well, that, that sounds great. Can you tell me about uh, your trip from St. Martin to Panama? 
Sure. Uh, let's see. It, it was the end of March. We uh, we had been working and working and working on the boat. I just sort of decided it's time to go. We could have spent another six months in St. Martin fixing this, fixing but uh, it just hit me that there's nothing, the boat's as safe as it's going to be. Things I didn't know how to fix before. If we don't leave, we're just, we're going to sit here fixing things forever. Uh, and, and there are so many people that I, I have met, especially there in St. Martin, but really over the years that had the dream of cruising and they just keep working on their boat and working and working and working and working. And they think that it needs to be perfect, which is a fine aspiration. But if that's your mindset, there's a, a write a huge check and get it done. It's just you're really not going to get there. So yeah, uh, I, I just decided it was time to leave. I agree with you totally. You know, my feeling uh, yeah. from working on boats is that, you know, you can mm -hmm. you can install things, you can get the newest, greatest, you can improve things on the boat, but then things start breaking, things start getting obsolete, and if you don't eventually go, yep. it, it's going to be a worse boat five years down the line than it is today. <laughs> Probably so. Probably so. So we, were, we actually motored away from St. Martin, and the wind finally picked up overnight. And then it uh, quickly built up to 30 to 40 knot winds, and the seas were like mountains. It was like nothing we'd ever seen. 30-foot seas right up off the coast of Venezuela and Colombia. And, uh, of course, I was seasick. And fortunately, my daughter is impervious to seasickness she's just absolutely resistant to it it doesn't seem to be something that gets to her at all but we we made it through so how did the um, tell me those waves were tell me about the, the the gale did you have any inkling in the weather reports about the gale coming it didn't seem like it was going to be that much weather i guess it, it the report was i think it said up to 30 beyond 30 and then really over the course of the year, I got a lot better at looking at weather reports, by the way, which were really intimidating. Now, they weren't breaking waves. They were just these mounds, these enormous mounds of water, and they were coming from behind the boat. So the boat would begin to surf down the face of the wave, which is really scary because you don't want to lose control and broach the boat. But we were surfing up to 12 and a half miles an hour at times, which uh, is not fast wow. by... In terms of really fast, you know, catamarans or automobiles or airplanes, but it it sure does scare you when all of a sudden you're going that fast. <laughs> yeah, what's the hull speed on the 46? And the bow would go up in the air, and the boat would sink stern first into a 30-foot trough, and then we'd do it again. And that went on for th three days. And it finally calmed down, and then we couldn't get enough canvas up to get moving again. <laughs> so. so you... Pretty much hit uh, the gale like tw within 24 hours of leaving uh, St. Martin? Uh, it wasn't 24. I'm trying to remember. It was two years ago now. It may have, might have been 36 hours of leaving St. Martin. But yeah, it was it was very soon after we left. We had, we had our hands full. And we really learned the lesson. You, you, certain things you hear, you don't really, really think about. We um, learned the lesson of put an put an extra reef in every every evening at dinner time before it gets dark. We learned that reefing almost doesn't slow you down at all. It's just a very very minor change in the speed. It's a it's a huge improvement on the safety. Sounds good. And comfort.
and the comfort. You didn't stop the whole way, so you didn't stop in the ABCs or anything like that? No, no, we went straight through because uh, it was, you know, but then 1st of April and we really wanted to get out of the Caribbean before um, before the hurricane season and we were hearing terrible horror, horror stories about people getting hung up um, uh, at the Panama Canal. We heard stories about people having to sit for two, two and three months in line to get through the canal. So we really wanted to get there and, and get through, you know, and leave ourselves plenty of time to get through. Um, was that also, the case uh, in the end? I, was that the case that What's people that? were hung up? No. What you have to do is hire an agent to get through. So we got the name of an agent. We contacted her ahead of time. And basically an agent is somebody who has already bribed all the officials to get you in line. So uh, we sent her some money, which is a very strange thing to do, you know, to send somebody in Panama money who you really don't know who they are or what they do or anything. And make a long story short, the published price, a pleasure yacht through the Panama Canal was $1,400, but by the time we got to the Pacific Ocean, we had spent over 3000 Oh, wow. So it's not a yeah. small expense. No, no, not really. You know, it's the only Panama Canal out there. So <laughs> I was thinking the agent fees were a few hundred, not like 1500 I'm sorry, what? I was thinking the agent fees were like a few hundred, not 1500 Well, yeah, the agent... I can't remember exactly what this, the prices were, but that's not all. Because um, you had the line handlers, you have to pay. You have those. to pay line handlers, you yeah, and you the... can't just use your own crew. You have to hire locals. You have to hire an advisor to come through as well. Okay, he's I the see. person that tells yeah. you, um, you know, it's 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 west, not east, to get through the canal, <laughs> and he, he's giving you all sorts of instructions, which. They're all pretty much common sense when you're going through. Yeah, um, we also get stuck, even though we had the agent, we were still at the... I'm sorry, go ahead. You got to get the fenders, rent those. Yeah, oh yeah, and, and um, the fenders were just spare tires wrapped in garbage bags. Right. We uh, we still had to spend 10 days at uh, Shelter Bay Marina, which just like the canal, it's the only marina in the area, it's, so they... They uh, charge a pretty good price for you to stay there. But it also turned out to be, in hindsight, you know, just like the time I spent working on the boat in St. Martin, there was a real upside to the time we got stuck there at Shelter Bay. We met a lot of the other people who were also staging to go through the canal. And that turned out, over the course of our year, to be a real benefit because we kept leapfrogging all of these other people that we, we were acquainted with throughout the course of the year. And you would think that when you head out into the vast Pacific Ocean, you'll never see anybody again that you The logical stops across the ocean are, are pretty well published, and uh, everybody's taking roughly the same course. We ran into a lot of the same boats and the same crews and captains that uh, we had met there in Panama. It's a strange and wonderful feeling that you get when you meet people that you've only met a few months before, and here you are halfway across the Pacific Ocean. It's this uh, this real brotherhood of, of sailors, and there's this this huge mutual respect for anybody that can, can make it even halfway across the Pacific Ocean. So that was Trey Benefield of Blue Moon Adventures. We'll have more of our discussion with Trey Benefield in a bonus episode for Patreon-only uh, supporters of the podcast. So if you've pledged 
a dollar or more on patreon.com you get access to all the bonus episodes including the bonus episode uh, for episode 22 with Trey Benefield now uh, I think there, there's a I was listening to another podcast which I don't think is terribly focused on sailboat cruising but the podcast uh, creator was estimating that it would cost him a thousand dollars an episode to outsource all the activities that he wanted to outsource so he did not uh, have creating a weekly podcast a full-time job and when I tell you that it costs at least twenty dollars an episode just for the telecommunication costs and web hosting I'm really not I've talked to a lot of podcasters and they all work very hard to put out the podcasts and there's a lot behind the scenes and a lot of expense behind the scenes uh, just in terms of what I've been doing here in Panama I just interviewed the crew of Miss Lone Star wonderful YouTube series that I can't wait to bring to you in episode 24 and you know that interview took uh, you know an hour and an hour on Skype cost me about half a gigabyte on my data plan which cost me $15 per gigabyte I'm also paying a uh, ten dollars per week for Wi-Fi in the marina and that doesn't even get to my costs uh, for putting up uh, a website and certainly doesn't get into my time and I'm not even asking you to allow me to outsource other tasks within the the, the uh, creation of a podcast so for example our episode 10 guest uh, Brian of SV Delos shaved off his beard to celebrate their 100,000th subscriber. What I'm going to do when we hit our Patreon goal of $20 is I'm going to give away my book for the first time on Amazon and all its other country sites, Slowbo to the Bahamas, for free to everyone in the world. So not just the, the, the people who support the podcast financially benefit but everybody uh, benefits from having that base of support so we can cover the telecommunication and hosting costs for the, the podcast another thing you can do if you don't want to contribute money it would be a, a great boost uh, if you could write a five-star review on iTunes to let other people know about the podcast. I'm trying to bring you the most interesting sailors in the world and I think that I am delivering on that and I just really appreciate it if you could support the podcast that way. Another way that you can keep the podcast going is to tell your friends about it. You know, if you enjoy it, let them know so they can subscribe for free and get all kinds of great advice from the most interesting sailors that are out there today. Annie Dyke, author of uh, Non Such Like It, 
and many other books and also YouTube sensation and we're going to talk to her about her experience quitting her job as a lawyer and becoming an author and a sailor and you will learn many things about Annie that you've never heard before she's very interesting and I think you're going to love that podcast in episode 23 and episode 24 you I think you'll really enjoy the crew of Miss Lone Star who are also just went out bought a boat and started sailing with their two kids and their dog and various other animals on board a very fun couple if you want to get a close-up look of what the slow boat looks like Annie produced a wonderful video in her boat tour series on YouTube uh, under Half Wind Will Travel and you'll want to check that out to see my ugly mug and also see what it's like inside the slow boat that's episode 8 on her boat tour series and there's a link to that on Facebook slash slow boat sailing or if you're looking in the search box just type in slow boat to the Bahamas on Facebook and like our page and you'll find out uh, all kinds of stuff that's going on in the slow boat and get a link to that video so goodbye for now and have some fun on the water until next week this is Linus Wilson Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.